Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis. We are back in Genesis today and Lord willing uh, next Sunday. And uh, as we continue in our series through this book, we come to Genesis chapter 44. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 1 through uh, the end of the the chapter. And the title of the message this morning is The Innocent for the Guilty. The Innocent for the Guilty. Now, when I was a kid, I uh, one of my... Uh, memories is that there were occasions when I and my uh, siblings would be riding in the car with my dad and and my mom, and my dad would sometimes see a police officer up ahead who had pulled someone over for some traffic violation, and my dad would say, look, kids, the police have caught a bad guy. Instantly, my siblings and I would snap to attention, and as we drove by, we would gawk at the scene and wonder what manner of evil was in that person's life that would make them get pulled over by the police. When I was around nine years of age, we were on our way to church on a Sunday morning, and we weren't too far from the church when my dad said, look, kids, the police have caught a bad guy. My siblings and I snapped to attention and saw a police car up in the distance by the side of the road having pulled someone over. And as we approached and then drove by to our horror, we saw that the bad guy that the police had pulled over was our pastor. (laughs) And our pastor saw us as we drove by He saw the perplexed looks on the faces of us kids as we stared at him through the car window, and he gave us an awkward pastoral wave as we (laughs) went by. I think about that moment literally almost every week when I'm driving to church on a Sunday morning, (laughs) and it explains why I always drive extra carefully within a mile or two of this campus, I do not want to have to wave at you and your perplexed children as you drive by on a Sunday morning. I share this to say that in our passage today, we will witness essentially a traffic stop. We will see Joseph's brothers on the road heading back to the land of Canaan, and they get pulled over by the Egyptian police. And this traffic stop will set in motion a chain of events that leads to one of the most beautiful moments in all of the Bible. You will recall that 22 years prior to our chapter today, Joseph's brothers uh, hated him and sold him to some Ishmaelite traders who then took him down to Egypt to be sold as a slave and Potiphar's house. Long story short, over the span of 20 years, Joseph went from slavery to prison and from prison to becoming the second most powerful man in all of the land of Egypt. Egypt has experienced its seven years of plenty, as Joseph predicted, and they are now in their second year of famine a famine that is also ravaging the land of Canaan where Jacob and his sons are living right now. In Genesis 42, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get grain. Uh, Joseph sees his brothers when they arrive in Egypt for the first time in 20 years and he disguises his identity from them. He also accuses them as he talks with them of being spies. They denied that accusation and said that they were sons of one father in the land of Canaan, and they had a younger brother back in Canaan. Joseph acts like he does not believe them. He puts them all in prison for three days, and then he took Simeon prisoner, sent the rest of the brothers home, and demanded that they bring their youngest brother back with them when they return to Egypt the next time. When Joseph's brothers 
inform Jacob of this, that they need to take Benjamin back with them the next time they go, Jacob initially refused to even consider the idea of allowing Benjamin to go down to Egypt with his brothers. But Judah, we saw, ended up persuading Jacob to let Benjamin go down with them. Uh, Judah offered himself as a surety for his brother Benjamin and told his father that if any evil befalls Benjamin when they return to Egypt, then Jacob can credit that evil to Judah's account and forever hold Judah as guilty of whatever evil befalls Benjamin. So Jacob reaches an epic moment of surrender and allows Benjamin to leave with his brothers to go down to Egypt. He sends them off with a prayer saying in Genesis 43, 14, may God almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man that he may release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And with that, he sends them off. And once they arrive in Egypt, they're left stunned at how well everything goes. Joseph's house steward assures them that the purchase money that had been placed in the mouth of their sacks of grain on their first visit was intentional and it was from God. He also returns Simeon, their brother, to them. Joseph then has them into his own house for a meal. Amazingly, Joseph seats his brothers according to their age, from the oldest to the youngest. And the brothers are left astonished at the seemingly supernatural insight that Joseph shows in doing that. Beyond that, while they're eating together, Joseph honors each of his brothers by taking portions from his own table and literally serves his brothers with those portions. At the same time, we learn that Joseph gave Benjamin five times as much food as he had given to his other brothers. And his goal was to see if his brothers would show any sign of jealousy against their brother, Benjamin. But the brothers we saw show no signs of jealousy. The chapter ends with the wonderful scene of Joseph and his brothers feasting and drinking together with Joseph's brothers, having no idea that the man they are dining together with was their brother, Joseph. So Joseph has learned a lot about his brothers on their two visits thus far. He heard them talking among themselves at one point and saw that they feel terrible about what they did to Joseph 22 years prior. Joseph also sees that they are evidently not given to jealousy like they once were. But in our chapter today, Joseph applies one final test. He has seen that his brothers don't show any jealousy when Benjamin, the son of Rachel, is honored above them, but will they stick with Benjamin when he is accused of a crime? Or will they use that opportunity to be rid of him? This will be the final test that Joseph will apply to his brothers to see where their hearts really are. And not only will these brothers pass this final test, but Judah is going to step forward and offer himself up as a vicarious substitute for Benjamin in a way that foreshadows what his descendant, Jesus Christ, will do for all of us, which is why we are entitling this message, The Innocent for the Guilty. If you want to know why Judah ends up being so prominent among the 12 tribes of Israel and the centuries that follow This chapter gives you a huge explanation for that. As we work through this chapter, here's how we'll break down our study. We'll observe eight developments in the story of the innocent offering himself up for the guilty. Development number one that we see beginning in verse one is that Joseph has his silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack of grain. After the wonderful lunch that Joseph enjoyed with his brothers, Joseph decides to lavishly supply his brothers for their return trip to 
the land of Canaan. Observe what Joseph does starting in verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. This is what Joseph had done before they journeyed home from their first visit to Egypt, and he does the same thing again here. But observe the next command that Joseph gives to his steward. Verse 2, he says, Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. We will learn in verse 5 that Joseph drank out of this cup. And we will also learn that Joseph evidently wanted his brothers to think that he used this cup for magical purposes of divination, which we'll say more about when we get to verse 5 in just a moment. So Joseph gives his steward these instructions to do these things, and his servant obeys. Verse 2 ends with the words, and he, the steward, did as Joseph had told him. So he puts grain in each of their sacks, the purchase money in the mouth of their sacks, and he puts Joseph's special silver cup in Benjamin's sack. They all go to sleep for that night, and when the sun rises on the next day, look at what happens in verse 3. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. Now imagine how these brothers would have felt as they began their return trip to Canaan. They're almost certainly overwhelmed with good feeling, marveling over how well things have gone. They had their worries about coming down to uh, Egypt to face this Lord of the land, but everything had gone more beautifully than they could have imagined. And now they're being sent away in one day to head back home to their father. Judah, no doubt, is feeling good that he's going to be able to return Benjamin safely to his father, and they're all looking forward to telling their father about how much his prayers for them on this trip were answered. But their trip back to Canaan is about to get rudely interrupted. And this brings us to the second development in the story of the innocent offering himself up for the guilty. Number two, Joseph sends his steward to accuse his brothers of stealing his silver cup. Observe what happens in verse four. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off. When Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. Now, clearly, Joseph Stewart is to accuse these brothers of doing some evil thing in response to all of the good that Joseph had done for them. And the evil that they are to be accused of doing had something to do with the thing from which my Lord drinks, which is clearly referring to the silver cup that Joseph had his steward put in Benjamin's sack of grain the night before. And notice that this steward is to describe the cup as the one which he, Joseph, uses for divination. Divination involved the uncovering of hidden knowledge that can only be supernaturally discerned, such as knowledge of the future, predicting the future. Diviners of the future back in this day, would often take a goblet or a cup, a magical cup of some sort, and they would put uh, wine in the cup or water in the cup, and then they would put drops of oil into that cup of wine or water, and then supposedly discern the future from the pattern that the oil droplets would form on the surface of the wine or the water. The practice of divination was later forbidden 
in the law of Moses in a couple different places. So it's hard to imagine that Joseph truly used this cup for this purpose. It's likely that Joseph is having his servants speak this way as a part of Joseph's disguise as a pagan ruler because he does not want them to know yet that he's actually their brother. He's just a ruler in Egypt. You can take this or leave it, um, whatever you choose. But you remember how Joseph, in the last chapter, how he seated all of his brothers from the oldest to the youngest, and the brothers were left astonished at that? Ancient Jewish tradition held that Joseph had acted like he was using this silver cup as he did that to determine where each brother was to uh, to be seated according to their ages. The Jewish Hamash actually quotes from Rabbi Solomon ben Isaac, who lived uh, and wrote around 1070 AD. He's also known as Rabbi Rashi. And this rabbi says um, that Joseph assigned the seating at the banquet by tapping his goblet, that's the silver cup, and calling out Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and so on in that order. The Hamash goes on to say that Joseph's use of the magic quote-unquote goblet was to set the stage for the later arrest of Benjamin for having stolen it. This suggestion is a real possibility that Joseph would do something like this as a part of his disguise as a pagan ruler of Egypt and as the first part of a test that would culminate on the next day, which is where we're at right now. So obeying instructions from his master, Joseph's steward takes off to do Joseph's bidding. In verse 6, we Read, so he overtook them and spoke these words to them. He followed um, after these brothers caught up to them. And when he did, he spoke these words to them that Joseph had told him to say. And he's asking them, why have you repaid evil for good? He draws attention to the silver cup, which the Lord of the land drank from and which he used for purposes of divination and he accuses them of having done wrong in taking this special silver cup well the brothers are mortified to hear this accusation against them and it sets off an exchange in which joseph steward's purpose will be to establish what the consequences will be for whoever it is that stole the silver cup and this brings us to the third development in the story of the innocent offering himself up for the guilty. Number three, Joseph, through his steward, establishes that the one who has the cup will be his slave and the rest innocent. Observe Joseph's brother's response to what Joseph's steward has just accused them of. Verse seven, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? They're actually making a great point here. Why would they return the money from their first trip that they found in the mouth of their sacks of grain only to steal something on their second trip. That's a great point. But by the way, notice the two statements they make. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. And how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Little do they realize that they are speaking these words to the steward of the very person against whom they committed a far greater crime 22 years prior. Two decades prior, they stole a man. They stole the favored son of Jacob from his father's house and sold him into slavery. And now 22 years later, they're being accused of a lesser crime 
They're being accused of stealing a silver cup, and they respond by saying, we would never do such a thing. It's unthinkable. In fact, they're so confident in their innocence on this point that they announce what they think should be done with whomever stole the silver cup. In verse 9, they say to Joseph Steward, verse 9, with whomever of your servants, it, the silver cup, is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Pay close attention to what they're saying here. They're offering to let whoever stole the cup, whoever the cup is found with, to be killed. And if such a thief is found among them, they will all be slaves to Joseph for the rest of their lives. They're saying this not because they think one of them has stolen the cup, but because they are absolutely convinced that none of them could have done such a thing. Well, having heard these words from Joseph's brothers, Joseph Stewart gives an interesting reply as he speaks on behalf of his master, Joseph. Verse 10, so he, the steward said, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. Let it be according to your words, Joseph's servant says to Joseph's brothers, but then says something that's not according to what they just said. Did you catch that? They had said whoever stole the cup should die and the rest of them would be Joseph's slaves. But Joseph's steward says that sounds like a great plan. Whoever stole the cup will be Joseph's slave and the rest shall be innocent. Joseph Stewart is acting on behalf of his master, Joseph, and his purpose in saying what he's saying here is to try to establish a distinction between the guilty brother and the rest of the brothers, because this is what will make Joseph's test of his brothers really work. Well, Joseph's brothers no doubt notice that the stewards talking differently than what they just said but they're not going to argue the point. It's a moot point anyway. None of them stole the silver cup. Of that, they are sure. So there's no sense arguing about sentences for the crime. But again, they're in for a rude awakening. And this brings us to the fourth development in this amazing story. Number four, the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack. Observe what the brothers do in verse 11. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he, Joseph's steward, searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. Imagine the growing satisfaction that the brothers would have felt as each brother's bag was being checked. They would have checked Reuben's bag first and the cup was not in his bag. Then they would have checked Simeon's bag and the cup was not in his bag. Then Levi, his bag would be checked and not found there. Then Judah's and his bag would be checked and the cup would not be found there. And with each bag checked, the brothers are feeling more and more vindicated and cleared. But then Joseph's steward came finally to the youngest brother's bag, Benjamin's, and checks that. And at the end of verse 12, we read the words, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Imagine the horror of these brothers. In fact, observe how these brothers respond when the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack of grain. Verse 13 says, then they tore their clothes. This is a public show of tremendous grief and pain mixed with the expectation of utter doom. Keep in mind that they had just opened their mouths and told Joseph's steward that whoever had the cup could be killed. 
and the rest of them would be Joseph's slaves. Joseph Stewart spoke differently than that. So best case scenario at this point is that Benjamin's life might be spared and that Benjamin will be a slave in Egypt, possibly killed. Worst case scenario is that he will be killed according to the word that these brothers had spoken and they are utterly mortified. Observe what they do next in verse 13. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. They had to be just sick to their stomachs, staring at one another in disbelief, staring at Benjamin, who is staring back at them with a look that says, I didn't take the cup. I don't know how it ended up in my sack of grain. And don't skip over the last clause of verse 13. The text says they, the brothers, all of them returned to the city. They didn't have to do this. If they were so inclined, this was their chance to be done with Benjamin. In their eyes, Benjamin is clearly guilty and they are innocent. Their bags are loaded with grain for their families back in the land of Canaan. And if they were of the same frame of mind that they were 22 years prior, they would have rejoiced in Benjamin's misfortune. They would have happily decided to let Benjamin be taken back by himself to Egypt to face this Lord of the land while they, the other brothers, continue on home to Canaan. But amazingly, this is not what these brothers do. Without even thinking, they load up their donkeys and return to the city with Benjamin. Their brother has been caught up in a trespass. And rather than abandoning Benjamin, they're going to stick with him and do whatever they need to do to help him out. Or they will suffer with him as a slave together with Benjamin for the rest of their lives. But they will not leave their brother behind. In fact, Joseph's brothers know just what they're going to do. And this leads us to the fifth development in this story. Joseph's brothers admit guilt and offer themselves up as Joseph's slaves together with Benjamin. Observe what happens in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he, Joseph, was still there and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? I know things supernaturally. Again, Joseph had clearly shown himself to be a man of great insight, supernatural insight to his brothers. He had seated them according to their ages the day before, leaving them astonished. And again, he uses the word divination here as a part of his disguise before his brothers. He's basically saying, you should have known that I, a man who practices divination, would know that you stole my special cup. Judah speaks up for his brothers in verse 16. The text says, so Joseph said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. When Judah says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants, Notice the plural, not just servant, as in Benjamin alone, but servants. Judah is speaking about Benjamin's theft of the silver cup. And Judah is saying that Benjamin's sin is their sin. He wants Joseph to impute the guilt of Benjamin's sin onto all of them, including Judah himself. But in making this statement, guys, that God has found out the iniquity of your servants, Judah also has to be thinking about their sin 
their iniquity against Joseph from 22 years prior. Yeah, it seemed like they got by with that iniquity from decades before, but the present situation now represents the moment where they will be paying for that former crime. In Judah's mind, they sold Joseph into slavery down to Egypt many years prior, and now they themselves will be made slaves in the same land. And so Judah says to Joseph, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And on that basis, Judah says to Joseph, behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whom possession of the cup has been found. They were not going to leave Benjamin to suffer his fate alone. Judah is offering that all the brothers stay together, even if it means suffering together with Benjamin as slaves under this Lord of the land of Egypt for the rest of their lives. Judah freely confesses that it is what they all deserve, and he doesn't even amazingly try to defend himself and his brothers. And guys, this is how Joseph, who's watching all of this, knows that Judah and his brothers have truly repented of what they did to him two decades prior. Imagine, silly example, imagine that you, for a hundred days in a row, going to and from work, you speed at 90 miles an hour down the freeway, breaking the law. And a police officer never catches you, never pulls you over. Then you start kind of feeling a little bit bad about that. And so you say, you know, I'm going to obey the speed limit. So the next day you're going to work at 55 miles an hour. And a police officer pulls you over and says, you were going 62. And I'm going to give you a ticket. How would you respond? You'd be thinking, how dare you pull me over? I was going 55. I know I was going 55. And you would want to defend yourself. And maybe that is the appropriate thing to do. Or you could also think all those hundreds of days that I went 90 miles an hour down the freeway and never got pulled over. This is from the Lord to me. I'm not saying you have to do that in those kind of situations, but that's kind of what Judah is doing here. They're not guilty of what they're being accused of here. But Judah is thinking about what they got by with. And he's realizing we've not gotten by with anything. And this is more than just. So he says, we and the brother with whom the silver cup is found, we will all be your slaves. But Joseph refuses to allow this, which brings us to the next development in this story. Number six, Joseph insists that only Benjamin be his slave and his brothers return to their father in peace. Listen to what Joseph says in verse 17. But he, Joseph said, Far be it from me to do this, to make slaves of all of you. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace. Go up in shalom to your father. Notice that Joseph is trying to create a wedge between his brothers and Benjamin. Benjamin alone will be his slave and the rest of them can go up to their father and live a life of shalom with their father. And in setting things up this way, as one writer says, Joseph is putting his brothers in a situation that replicates their situation 22 years earlier as closely as possible. He therefore invites them to return home without Benjamin, who will stay in Egypt as his slave. If there is any shred of hatred or jealousy in Joseph's brothers, this is the tailor-made opportunity for them to be done with their brother, Benjamin, 
who is the final son of Rachel and who is now daddy's favorite. And they can go home without him. They don't even have to lie to their father or make anything up this time. They can say, hey, the cup belonging to the Lord of the land was found in Benjamin's sack of grain. So evidently he stole it. So the Lord of the land took him and made him his slave and commanded the rest of us to leave Egypt and return home. This would not just be some evil that randomly befell Benjamin. Benjamin, it could be said, stole the cup, evidently. He did the evil and he's getting what he deserves. And the Lord of the land told us to come home in Shalom to our father. If these brothers were where they were 22 years prior, this is how they would have responded. And they would not have cared about the grief that would have come to their father. But that is not how these brothers respond now. And this brings us to the seventh development in this unfolding story. Number seven, Judah pleads with Joseph to consider how much Benjamin means to his father. Observe what Judah does in verse 18. Then Judah approached him and said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. And then Judah launches into literally the longest speech found in the book of Genesis. One writer describes this as a speech of singular passion and beauty. Yet another writer describes this speech as the finest specimen of dignified and persuasive eloquence in the Old Testament. In this speech, we see Judah's love for his brother, Benjamin, but we also see Judah's love for his father, Jacob, whom he mentions 14 times in this speech. Listen to Judah's speech before Joseph beginning in verse 19. As he reviews the history of how all this came about, he says, beginning in verse 19, my Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Then you, Judah says, speaking to Joseph, whom he does not know as Joseph, Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord and our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. In other words, we cannot go down to Egypt. If our younger brother is with us, though, then we will go down for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons and the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn in pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol or the grave in sorrow. Judah is speaking these words to Joseph, the Lord of the land of Egypt. His goal is partly to kind of put it on Joseph that Benjamin's even there. This this man who's proven to be a problem to you and stealing your cup, you're the one who insisted that he come here. But his goal primarily is to garner sympathy for their father, Jacob. Joseph, listening to these words, would learn here not only that his brothers evidently love Benjamin, but that they love their father also. 22 years prior, Judah and his brothers wanted to be rid of Joseph because of how much their father loved him. And now amazingly, Judah pleads for Benjamin 
and his well-being precisely because his father loved him so much. What a turnaround. Judah or Joseph would also learn something else here. For the first time in verse 28, Joseph would learn that Jacob, his father, thinks that Joseph has been torn to pieces. Joseph earlier learned that his brother spoke of him as being dead. Here he learns that his father evidently thinks that he was torn in pieces by nothing other than a savage animal. Listen to what Judah says next, beginning in verse 30. Now, therefore, he says to Joseph, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol or the grave in sorrow. 22 years prior, Judah and his brothers couldn't care less about the sorrow that they brought to their father. Yet they're different now. Judah desperately does not want to bring sorrow to his dad. It's clear that Judah and his brothers are in a much better place of wanting to honor their father than they were two decades prior. Judah here in this speech is not simply pleading for Benjamin's well-being He's pleading for the well-being of his father. And Judah is not finished. He makes his final appeal to this Lord of the land and offers himself up on behalf of his guilty brother. And this leads us to the final development in this amazing story of the innocent offering himself up for the guilty. Number eight, Judah offers himself as a slave in place of his brother Benjamin. Listen to what Judah says to Joseph in verse 32. For your servant, speaking of himself, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame, literally the sin before my father forever. Having become surety for Benjamin to his father means that Jacob could kill Judah or banish him from the family forever if Benjamin does not return with him from Egypt. So here is Judah's offer in verse 33 and 34. He says to Joseph, Now therefore, because of everything I have shared with you thus far, please let your servant, speaking of himself, remain Instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Notice that Judah does not say in verse 34, you know, let me be your slave so that my brother can return because I fear what my dad's going to do to me if I return home without him. No, Judah isn't the least bit thinking about his own life here. His fear is the fear of seeing what would happen to his dad if Benjamin did not return with him. So he offers himself as a slave and makes a more sacrificial offer than what he had offered before on behalf of the brothers. Before, he offered that he and his brothers would all stay in Egypt and be slaves together with Benjamin under this Lord of the land. But here he's asking Joseph, pleading with him to let Benjamin return with the rest of his brothers. And Judah alone would stay behind and be a slave in Egypt so that Benjamin and his brothers could go home free. 22 years prior, if you reread Genesis 37, it was Judah. It was Judah who had convinced his brothers to sell Joseph as a slave to some traders who were heading down to Egypt. 
And here now is Judah, 22 years later, who's willingly offering himself up as a slave in Egypt on behalf of Benjamin, the son of Rachel, in order that Benjamin, the seemingly guilty son of Rachel, would be able to go home free and return to Canaan with his brothers. I don't know how moved you are by the response of these brothers to this situation or by what Judah is saying to Joseph here, but it is all too much for Joseph. His final test is now complete. He has learned what he wanted to learn, and he ended up getting more than I think he would have hoped for. Joseph finds no joy in seeing his brothers being so alarmed and agitated, yet this awful circumstance has drawn forth from them the beauty of God's work in them, and Joseph is deeply moved by what he sees. Joseph now sees that his brothers have truly changed. These are brothers that he can reveal himself to and know that they will have his back. These are brothers that he can invite to come and live in Egypt so that he can provide for them. These are brothers that he can have a future with. These are brothers who can stand tall as the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation that God is going to bless and through whom he will bring blessing to all of the families of the earth all the way down to us today. And Joseph's heart melts into a pool of tears. The next chapter opens with these words. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried. Verse 2 tells us that he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. And in those tears, Joseph will finally reveal himself to his brothers. But you will have to come back next week (laughs) to learn about that. We see in this chapter the power of God to change the worst of men. Every one of us would have written off Joseph's brothers after what they did to Joseph 22 years prior, right? They sold him as a slave. They lied to their father and led their dad to believe that he was torn into pieces by a wild animal. They let their dad grieve for 22 years without ever telling him the truth. A few years before they did this to Joseph, Levi and Simeon led all of these other brothers in slaughtering every male in the city of Shechem because a man in that city, one man in that city, had raped their sister. Reuben also slept with his father's concubine and defiled her. After these brothers sold Joseph into slavery, under Judah's leadership, Judah marries a Canaanite woman and has three sons through her. His first son dies because God killed him for his wickedness. His second son is killed by God for his wickedness. Judah himself unwittingly sleeps with his daughter-in-law who had disguised herself as a prostitute. Surely nothing good can come from Judah and his brothers, right? And yet, behold what God has wrought in this chapter. Behold the revelation of what God has made of these Men in this chapter, which should give hope to every sinner in this room. Behold the beauty that is shining forth from Judah in this chapter. God has clearly done a powerful work of grace in Judah and in his brothers. And all this reminds us, guys, of the power of God to transform a human life reminds us that it matters not how ugly your beginning is. God can take you from the depths of depravity 
and transform you into a bright beacon of his grace and use you for his glory. Do you believe that? God took the Apostle Paul, a man who was formerly a blasphemer and a violent aggressor, responsible for the death and imprisonment of Christians, and he turned him, he saved him, and turned him into a great apostle who wrote about one-fourth of our New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, this very apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is the power of God to change a life, and he can change your life too. And we see that on full display with Joseph's brothers. These 12 brothers of Joseph will become leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah himself will be the ancestor of David and other kings of Judah and of the Messiah himself. And one day these brothers' names will be engraved on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven to men. What crazy grace is this? In our story today, Judah offers himself up, the innocent for the guilty, to be a slave in Benjamin's place. It should therefore come as no surprise to us that it will be a descendant of Judah, Jesus Christ, who will offer himself up, the truly innocent, for the guilty at the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul speaks about this descendant of Judah and tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Romans 5, we're told that while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when he died for us, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body. On the cross, he suffered the anguish that we deserved, the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins that we are rightly accused of. He died in our place so that all who believe in him could go free. Some of you are here today and you have never believed in Jesus. And today may be the day of salvation for you. It can be. Believe in Jesus today. Call upon his name. Receive the atonement that he offers to you through his shed blood at the cross. Confess your sins to him and be saved. And then let him begin to transform you. Transform your life the same way he's changing Joseph's brothers into something beautiful and good. In closing, I, I love how these brothers look after their brother Benjamin in this situation. What kind of sibling are you, both in the home and in the church family? As far as they know, Benjamin is guilty. He's been caught in a trespass, and the brothers don't even think of abandoning him. Even though he looks totally guilty, they return to Joseph's house with Benjamin. They offer themselves up to serve as slaves together with Benjamin. They will not be leaving this brother behind in Egypt. Judah himself is willing to become a slave 
under this Lord of the land in order that Benjamin might be able to return with his other brothers to their father. They could have viewed Benjamin's misfortune as divine fate allowed by a just God because of something Benjamin must have done wrong to deserve this and bring it upon himself. They could have secretly rejoiced in Benjamin's misfortune, but they didn't respond that way. They didn't pull away from Benjamin in his moment of accusation when Benjamin needed them the most. They're willing to stand with him. They're willing to suffer with him if need be, and even willing to suffer in his place. It has sometimes been said that the church too often shoots its own wounded. Judah and his brothers refuse to shoot their own wounded. They have a brother down and they will not be leaving this brother behind. Joseph has honored Benjamin in the last chapter and he saw that his brothers did not despise Benjamin for that greater honor. Now Joseph accuses Benjamin and sees that his brothers did not despise or abandon Benjamin because of the accusation. How you respond when a brother or sister is honored above you reveals a lot about you. How you respond when a brother or sister stands rightly or wrongly accused or gossiped about, how you respond to that reveals a lot about you too. We have a Savior in Jesus who moved toward us when we stood rightly accused before the God of heaven and he came to our aid. He died in our place. He suffered for us. How can we, the recipients of such grace, abandon a brother or sister in their sin. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. That's what Joseph's brothers do in our chapter today, and it's what we have a chance to do for one another. In 1 John 3, 16, you might want to write this reference down. John tells us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And as we love each other in this way, as the Apostle John says in 1 John three fourteen, we can know that we have passed from death into life because we love whom? The brethren. Because that's what children of God do. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is quick and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We're not just hearing in a story of ancient events that take place. We are... We are, through this story, left gazing at our own hearts, repenting of sin where that is needed. And we're also left seeing the opportunities that lie before us to, to mirror the very ethic that we see exhibited in this chapter today. Make us a people who love one another, who lay down our lives for each other, who bear each other's burdens. When a brother or sister stands rightly or wrongly accused, may, may we respond appropriately to that, not by pulling away from them, but moving toward them, loving them, helping them out of their sin, gladly identifying ourselves with them. May we be motivated to 
do this, Lord, because we cherish what you, our big brother Jesus, did for us when we were rightly accused before the God of heaven. You came and you lived among us. You moved toward us and you died in our place. You took our guilt upon yourself. And not only should we receive the salvation offered through you, but that's the template for. May that govern how we go about relating to one another. In the church and in the home. You're a good God to give us your word to point us to these and so many other things. Lord, take what we've learned today, sink them deep into our souls and make us a changed people. We thank you also, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings uh, to you at this point of our service. We pray that you would receive everything that is given in this offering and do much with all that is given for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of your people who give uh, even sacrificially to the work that you are doing here in this community and around the world through the missionaries that we support. We pray for Team Philippines, Lord, that has a few more days left of ministry uh, in the Philippines. Bless and prosper them, Lord. Keep them healthy and use them to be a great blessing to everyone whose lives they touch and help us all to do the same. Bless us all in the same way as we as missionaries go forth from this service to be a beacon of light and hope to many. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.